0: AT&T ThreatTrack is a roundtable discussion of the latest network security trends and news conducted by AT&T data security analysts. Complete video of this show is available at techchannel.att.com.
1: Hello, welcome to AT&T ThreatTrack for July 5th, 2016. This program provides network security highlights, discussion, and countermeasures for cyber threats. Uh, Today we're joined online by uh, uh, Jim Clausing. Hey, Jim, how's it going? Going well. How how was your 4th of July? Yeah, recovering from an overdose of barbecue. Well, that's a good thing to be overdosed on. And uh, joining me on the couch here this week is uh, Matt Kaiser. Hey, Matt, how are you doing this week? Doing pretty well. Getting back into the flow of things. It's our first day back after the, uh, or first week back after uh, the holiday, so... uh, Everybody's catching up. And uh, I'm John Hogeboom. Uh, So I think the first story we're going to jump into is, you read a book recently, right, Matt? I did. It's an interesting topic that I have some comments on, too. But why don't you tell me what this book is all about? So
0: this is Hacking Point of Sale by Slava Gomzin.
1: The subtitle, uh, I think,
0: is actually a more accurate portrayal of what's in the book. It's Payment, Application, Secrets, Threats, and Solutions. Because point of sale is just a small part of what gets discussed in the book. Warning for the, the reader if you're not comfortable with lots of acronyms, not the book for you. Uh, and the other thing that I found is that these acronyms overlap a lot with terms that we're used to using in, in computer security. Like POS, I think it sort of grew up side by side with what we think of as InfoSec. So a lot of the terms, you know, they didn't sort of disambiguate them. So, you know, processor means something very different in InfoSec, it means the computer, but processor is, you know, an agent within a payment scheme. Right, right. Uh, and Tor is timeout reversal which is sort of dealing with um, issues when someone tries to issue a a payment and there's some sort of timeout, they'll cancel the first one and then send another one. There's all sorts of interesting, it gets very intricate and detailed. So they get into
1: the details of payment processing and how that all works. The the glorious
0: and and fascinating, I mean it is pretty fascinating, I'm being a little sarcastic, um, but it is very detailed. Turns out there's a lot more different roles in payment processing than I ever thought imaginable. And I had a hard time keeping them separate, but I imagine the same is is for people who are in in the, the field as well. There is a chapter on PCI. Yes, I can see how excited you're getting about that. <laughs> it's it's difficult, um, and it's not the most exciting. PCI is you know very again a little bit tedious. Um, but I think the best part of the chapter of PCI is that he talks about the reasons in which it's not sufficient. One of the most compelling ones that I remember from the book is he talked about. I don't believe, and this is all I know from PCI is is from this book. He says that in in PCI, they don't have any sort of restrictions on protecting data in memory, not on the wire and not on disk, but in memory. Uh, I guess the assumption was that this wouldn't happen all that often, that data wouldn't be stored in memory for very long. But we know from a lot of the very famous hacks, I think think the Heartland Breach is one of them that data in memory is often under attack, you know, get malware on the system and scrape things right out of RAM, you can get whole card numbers, you can get other details that are valuable to an right. attacker. One of the funny things that I remember from this book is there was a line on page 65, That's in my notes, I don't remember that, it's in my notes, mm-hmm. um, but he says, does anyone know how to write an application that interferes with antivirus? He was criticizing something within PCI because it's something that says application cannot interfere with anti- uh, antivirus. Oh. And we reviewed a book on the show that shows you exactly right, how to yeah. interfere with antivirus. That was the Antivirus Hacker's Handbook. So I got a kick out of that for a second. So I guess other sections that I enjoyed, there's a section on MagStripe reading, mm-hmm. that it? what's track one, track two, what sorts of data you would expect on them, and how Carters will go ahead and clone that data and sell that and use that. That was kind of neat because it, was, it wasn't just the technology. It was the ecosystem of the criminal underground that it goes into a bit. Right. So that was cool. And there's a big section about defense at the end which is also pretty darn good. So I would recommend this book. I also think it's really great that he provides code examples of ways to do things like scraping memory for credit card numbers. And that code is actually available on the publisher's website. So if you wanted to go ahead and take a look at how someone would write something like that, it's right there for you.
1: Okay. So I guess one of the questions I had is, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk over the past, whatever, two, three years, about malware on point of sale systems mm-hmm you know, harvesting uh, credit card information and whatnot, and then shuttling that off to a real place. But did they talk about any of the other types of payment processing scams? Like, you know, I know there've been some cases where they've put like rogue credit card readers in mm-hmm. stores. Like actually people physically go into a store, place a rogue device, no, swap a it out with it. Yep. Yeah, or well, not even whole... a skimmer, like they'll replace the whole unit or whatever. Do they talk about any of that stuff as well? In this, I believe book? they
0: talk about skimmers and, um, I'm trying to remember exactly in what context they talk about replacing rogue devices. But there are a couple interesting points that I think are related to that that he did bring up that I do remember. One of which being that uh, encryption, when you're trying to send from you know the, the the merchant to the payment processor or whoever is the next step, because there are, it could go many different ways. Encryption is only required once it leaves your network. So within the network, mm-hmm. as long as there's, if there's one bad device on the network, you may not be able to say definitively there is encryption protecting that data. You know, if if you've got 10 terminals and one of them is bad, your bad terminal could be sniffing the wire and taking that all out. Right, right. So, um,
1: point of sale, as a matter of fact, uh, you know, Stan Nurlov, who's on the show, uh, he and I did a little kind of side project last summer, uh, with one of the interns looking at point of sale malware and, uh, it was actually a very interesting kind of dive. We actually replicated a point-of-sale system, so we got a little credit card reader. You can go to Amazon and mm-hmm. buy one, plugs in USB. I think it was, like, literally $5. Um, and we got a, a kind of one of those um, scanners. A barcode a reader. A barcode reader, you know, and we had a whole bunch of products. We set up, like, a, a fake, uh, well, not a fake, but um, you can get open-source point-of-sale system. Yep. We had some malware running on it, and we were, you know, scanning in stuff, but it was not going to the real malware command and control. But we could you know, demonstrate how this stuff works. It was pretty interesting um, to kind of replicate a little point of sale system on your own and study some of the malware that's out there. And as a matter of fact, the next story I have that talks about some of that. So uh, I think uh, it's a it's an important topic. And you know, we've seen a lot of we've seen a lot of point of sale breaches or theft of customer credential information via way of mm-hmm. uh, point of sale systems uh, over the past few years here. So I think people are paying attention. So obviously a book like this would be a good thing, especially the defense. So if they have some good recommendations on what you should be looking for, how you should be protecting your environment so that um, this type of situation doesn't arise, uh, that's a good thing. So the next story is one I was looking at and I did reference uh, point of sale malware. So this is, um, uh, kind of tangentially related to that because it's about uh, how to detect DNS exfiltration. And um, over the past, I want to say, and this is not, I don't want to say this is a new technique, but over the past two to three months, I've seen an uptick in various types of malware that are using uh, DNS as a means to exfiltrate or perform command and control. As opposed to normally you'll see command and control where they'll talk to a specific server Um, or sometimes peer-to-peer is another method of command and control. The thing that's really interesting and kind of troubling about DNS as a command and control and exfiltration means is that your infected devices are talking to your DNS server, which might talk to another DNS server, which might talk to another one Mm -hmm. before it ever. So unless you're monitoring your DNS, you're not looking for activity to a particular endpoint or to a particular special protocol or anything. Uh, but Talos has an interesting article that they put together about how you can do some kind of statistical analysis if you are doing DNS logging of what domains are being looked up. They did some kind of distribution studies, and a lot of these exfiltration ones have very long DNS names mm-hmm. because they want to, you know, encode some data in there. And when they make the query, that's how they send a little bit of the data, and they just keep sending new queries to stitch together all of the stuff that they're exfiltrating. Point in fact, the multi-grain malware that steals credit card information, it's a point of sale malware, is an example that they use in the article here. Um, there are a few other ones uh, that, they, that are talked about in some other forms, so like framework POS, I think you might have actually looked at, about, at that last year a couple of years ago when it first came out. It's another one that uses DNS for exfiltration of credit card information. And um, recently, in the past two to three months, the WECB gang, who is a APT nation state oriented espionage group, um, they've been using DNS as a means for command and control. And I'm not sure if they actually actually, I think they might exfiltrate data with that one, but it's another sample that's doing that. Um, It's what it's an interesting thing. It's not widely adopted because In order to exfiltrate any volume of data, requires a lot more requests to do that because you can only send a very small amount of data in a DNS query. A a DNS query packet can only be 512. Actually, a response can only be 512 bytes. So you're really not going to be able to transmit a lot in a single request.
0: Responses, though, I think actually do go over that limit. And I was actually remember talking with somebody on our DDoS group. It turns out there is actually an extension.
1: There is. It's not widely adopted.
2: Yeah, yeah, no. With EDNS zero, you can go over that five hundred and twelve byte limit. You can have much larger ones. I, I thought this was a fascinating article too. Uh, I think everybody should be doing passive DNS monitoring and keeping track of what domains are being, you know, looked up and what responses are coming back. And especially the the article was talking about the the WECB using uh, text records, DNS text mm-hmm. records for command and control. Those I think uh, d- deserve additional scrutiny. I, there's not a lot of uh, use for for those in legitimate purposes outside of things like um, SPF and, and right. that kind of thing. So you know, you ought to be paying real close attention, especially to the, any text records to get looked up.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Doing analysis of, you know, what we call passive DNS data analysis. Um, even more, uh, not just for this type of activity, but in general, you can learn a lot or discover a lot of security issues on your network just trying to figure out what they're looking up mm-hmm. um, and what users are looking up. we trying to figure out what domains are domains that were just recently registered that are people looking up because those tend to be oftentimes not necessarily the best ones in the world. Yeah. Um, they don't necessarily have to be malware, but they might be a lot of advertising and things of those natures that are not necessarily business you know, critical that people uh, uh, are able to access them. Uh, in any event, I agree with you, Jim, that's a uh, very good point. So good article to read. One yeah. thing
0: I'd add to that is getting the right vantage point on your passive DNS, because once yes. you're outside of your, once you have a way to say this is the source IP address within my network that actually looked it up, Having a vantage point outside the network looking in, it's valuable, don't get me wrong, but it's not gonna lead you very quickly to finding out who actually made that lookup, unless you're logging at the server, and from my understanding, most big companies don't do that. Right, it depends on the
1: size of your company. It gets tricky, but you're right. DNS is one of those protocols where you have what's called these forward caching resolvers. So in a very large architecture, you might have a bunch of low-level DNS servers that everybody's talking to, but those forward requests up, and they cache the answer, so if somebody asks the same thing like a couple of seconds later, they won't have to go up. And, but it could have this whole hierarchy that if you're looking way up here, you're not going to see who the actual infected machine is mm-hmm. if there's a bunch of other kind of middle stream DNS servers in between. So uh, that's a good point. Uh, when you're doing your you know, passive DNS analysis, you might need to think about where you collect your DNS metadata uh, so that you get the best picture for whatever you're trying to achieve. Um, in terms of your security analysis. The next story uh, is one that you were looking at, Jim, and it sounds like um, uh, some mobile handsets are doing better than others in terms of malware.
2: Yeah, there are actually two stories that I want to talk about, uh, kind of, I'm combining them here. Um, The first one was uh, an article that Graham Cluley did on the Tripwire blog where they were reporting a, a study that Kaspersky had published, uh, where Kaspersky was saying that the amount of Android ransomware had quadrupled in the last year. Huh. And there's no question in my mind that the amount of Android ransomware has increased. I'm not sure if it actually quadrupled, but I'll we'll talk about that in a minute. But, you know, we've, we've talked about um, ransomware quite a bit on the show over the last couple of years, uh, we've seen ransomware for Windows, but we've also seen it for OS X, for Linux, and for Android. And you know, for Windows, we often see it actually encrypting the files underneath. For Android, actually, what we see more often is it just presents a lock screen that the that the user doesn't have a way of getting around. Rarely do we see it actually encrypting, but it it locks the thing and then it requires you to, you know pay the ransom to be able to get past the lock screen to get back to your device. The one point that um, clearly made in the article was, it isn't clear whether the huge jump in the number of instances that Kaspersky has seen is due to that large jump in total, or whether it's that more devices were running Kaspersky software, so they saw more of it that way. But there's no doubt in my mind that there's been an increase in in ransomware uh, targeting androids. and it's not going to stop at just the phones and the tablets we're We're seeing things like TVs that are running Android. So we're going to see you know ransomware targeting things like TVs and other IOT devices. Right. I, I'm sure in the next you know year or two or three. Also on Graham Cluley's own blog, right around the same time, uh, he had another article that I thought was interesting juxtaposition. Last month was the ninth anniversary of the introduction of the iPhone, wow. and the point that he made in his blog post was. After nine years, there still haven't been any significant malware outbreaks targeting iOS. Now, that doesn't mean there hasn't been any malware for iOS. There has been, but um, there hasn't been any significant malware outbreaks on iOS in the nine years that the iPhone has been out there. You know, that's, that's probably due in large part to the fact that Apple has... You know, maintained tighter controls on, you know, what can get into the, the app store and so forth. I, I, I thought that was really interesting. It, I hadn't really realized it's been nine years since the iPhone came out. It's it, interesting times in the mobile world. Going to keep us in job security for a long time, I'm sure.
1: Right. I still think in general, I don't have any statistical information, just my vibe is that in general, mobile handsets and malware is still a lot lower. Well, it's obviously a lot lower than your traditional desktop and Windows PC machines and whatnot, but it's so much lower that, in my opinion, like to quadruple in ransomware on an Android platform, if you're going from like 10, you know, malware family samples to 40, that's you know, a lot. That's not that big of a deal, right? But if you were to try to quadruple the amount of malware in a PC Windows type environment, that would be millions upon probably hundreds of millions of types. So um, I still think they're in pretty good shape in general, in my opinion.
2: Uh, oh, I, I agree. And the you know, there we've talked before that we'll see we see these numbers of the you know different malware families and so forth that seems so much larger on androids and on the mobile devices and and part of that is that I think they need to try to create as many apps with this malware in it as possible because they won't last long in the in the store anyway right
1: the other thing I think is interesting is Android, um in general as an operating system seems to be distributed amongst more platforms than uh, just mobile devices, right? Like I know, you know, you're mentioning we're going to see ransomware um, on TVs and whatnot, whatnot, and I know my television actually is an Mm Android-based device and it has apps you can install and there is some ransomware out there for it i don't know if we talked about it on the show that i think like, we did actually did we okay yeah. i might have missed that episode but it's one of those ones where like geez you know how far can this go and do i really need all of my devices to have such extensive capabilities on it and maybe i do because there are some good apps that i've installed on my television but uh, i think android in general has a lot better or a lot more distribution uh, across multiple platforms uh, which well, might also be part of... I mean, uh, it's
0: it's not, because iOS is, is tightly controlled, and that's one of the, right. the things that's good about it is that you know what hardware it's going to be running on because Apple controls the hardware and the software. Right, When right. you open something up like Android, you get all sorts of interesting stuff, like little, you know, HDMI sticks you plug into the back of your TV to do all sorts of nefarious, not nefarious magic, but right.
1: things. Interesting, right, little embedded devices yeah. and whatnot, right. All right, cool. Good story. Uh, Interesting. And uh, I guess we'll see how that... Hopefully it's not eight times next year, but we'll see how the trend (laughs) goes uh, along the way here. Uh, So the next story is one that you were looking into, Matt, Um, and I read this story too. It was a very good read uh, about um, a keylogger incident of some malware that somebody analyzed. Yep, so uh, one of the researchers
0: at Trustwave posted this, and I thought it was really good too. It's a really good write-up of the analysis process of going from You know, having a suspicious email going through and looking at the malware that it comes with that, it reaching out to another server, et cetera, getting the secondary payload. I'll just walk through it. So the researcher, they have spam traps over at Trustwave. This came in one time. It had a malicious, what looked like a doc file, but was actually an RTF, which is, you know, kind of an older format. And it actually had a vulnerability exploit for a vulnerability from, I think, 2010. Yeah. That apparently this is still working enough for these guys to start using it in their attacks, and that actually contained a little bit of shell code, reached out to a server, pulled down a copy of Hawkeye Keylogger, which somehow it seems like it's. I'm seeing more of Hawkeye Keylogger, yeah, both I in, have. like, targeted and non-targeted. It's one of those ones you could go out, you know, if you're of the mind to go and pay for a Keylogger, they sell it, they, they, you know, there's one of those... Maybe grayware, maybe not grayware. Right,
1: wear. It's being used for what I guess legitimate key logging purposes and some illegitimate right. ones. Right. So
0: the analyst took a look at all the features that were actually supported and then went through the code and there's screenshots showing here's your key logging functionality, here's your command and control, et cetera, all the different sections, which, you know, worth reading if you ever wanted to see what malware looks like. Then he went and took a look at the code and found that this thing communicates back home using email. Okay. It sends all the, keys, well, the keystrokes that it logs to an email address. Uh, and then he logged into that email address because it contained the username and the password and the code and found out that it was actually being forwarded to a Gmail address. So that sort of ended the whole process. The, the, the question that I have, though, is that at, at what point... And I, I know we talked about it before the show, but by logging into that email address, it wasn't his. It wasn't necessarily part of needing to defend against... Like he had that, that endpoint. He could have used that to f- defend his company, but logging into somebody else's email address, which turned out was a compromised email address, not set up just for the purpose of right. malware, but some victim somewhere had their email compromised and he was able to view the contents of that inbox. At what point did he cross
1: a line, if he crossed a line at all, right? So I guess, you know, if you're gonna ask me, I would say he probably did cross the line there, right? Because mm-hmm. two wrongs don't make a right, right. You can't just go logging into, even if you know the credentials that some bad actor is using on some location or even if a bad actor's command and control server doesn't give you the right to get into it just because you can. Right. Right. Because you're no better than him at that point. Mm -hmm. Um, That would be my guess. But that aside, it was a very good write up uh, of the analysis process up to that point. But sometimes, you know, there are cases where things like that in order to discover especially if you're law enforcement or whatnot, you mm-hmm. would need to kind of go through that full process to understand who is the person behind that. And I don't know that in most cases as a malware defender, do you really need to figure out who the bad actor is mm-hmm. so much as you need to know how to, how do I defend against this in the future so that I don't have to, you know, and I think he probably could have shortcutted the process. Once I understand how this thing's communicating and where it's communicating to, and. Mm-hmm. Get some MD5 sums or fingerprints of the malware. You would probably be able to draw the line there as to mm-hmm. uh, the extent of that analysis. But it, in in uh, general, I thought it was a really good write up because well, very detailed, well organized write up about um, his process of analyzing a very like you said typical malware sample. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it's a good read. Yeah, definitely. So the uh, next story is one that you were looking at, Jim. And speaking of losing control of email accounts, that could be you know repurposed for malicious reasons, like your last story, Matt. Mm -hmm. Um, It sounds like uh, some company have lost control of their domains, Jim?
2: Yeah, this was uh, an interesting one that I just saw today in uh, HelpNet Security. They were talking about TP-Link, which is a company we've actually talked about them on the show before. They make home Wi-Fi routers and similar devices. And they apparently lost control of two domain names that they use for configuring their devices. Basically what happens is you, when you plug one of these devices into your network and you go to configure it, you go to one of these domain names and it won't go out and look it up, but it will intercept it. So you use this domain name to configure your device so the TP-Link actually lost control of two of these
1: so basically the the domains expired and they forgot to renew them that's the basic right choice, right, right. They,
2: the domains expired they forgot to renew them which you know unfortunately happens I mean it's uh, it's happened to folks I know who had domains they had personally registered and then lost track of when they were coming up for renewal and And somebody else swooped in and then tries to sell it back to them for, you know, a thousand times the price or something. Right. So TP-Link has said they're not going to pay the exorbitant fees that that the folks who swooped in and took them are asking. The issue becomes if somebody with bad intentions actually got a hold of these domains, would they be able to... You know, potentially spread malware, provide alternate infected firmware images yep. that folks might accidentally download onto their devices. And I, and I think it is something to worry about. It's not a huge worry. I wouldn't think it yet at this point. I haven't seen any evidence of it. But it is something that, in, in the back of my mind, is, is something to, to keep an eye on and something to worry about. Uh, if you if you use these domains, if they're you know if their names are hard coded into you know the existing devices, those can that can potentially be changed. And in fact, I think TP-Link is updating their documentation to tell users how to change them to domains they still do own. Hmm. But it's something to keep track of. It's it's how many companies are are conscious of all of the domains that they've registered and when they expire and, you know, what the consequences might be if they lose control of some of them. Uh, Because there are folks who do nothing but sit out there watching for domains to expire so that they can swoop in and then grab them and then try to sell them back to whoever owned them initially to try to make money off them. The guys at at TP-Link at present say they don't, uh, think the lost domains present a, a problem, and at this point, I'm willing to take them at their word. But it did get me thinking about how they, the bad guys, might take advantage of of this situation to harm consumers. So, I thought it was interesting. I thought it was worth bringing up to our audience.
1: Yeah, no, it is. I think it is uh, important to bring up, especially the aspect of if you are a vendor or even just a service provider and you have domains that you've registered, having some kind of process in place to manage those domains and then, like you said, understand the impact of what if we lost control of these domains and we did forget to uh, renew them, what kind of consequences would that have? Do we have hardware devices that are dependent on that for configuration or is it just you know, like a small website for advertising or whatever. Like or whole, or, thing,
2: or whatever. could they trick the users, you know, because the, these these domains, as I said, the devices right now intercept them and take the user to the configuration page on the local device. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if the bad guys put up a fake page, they could potentially harvest credentials for some of these home devices that they might then be able to, or attempt to turn around and infect them and recruit them into their, you know, botnet armies. Right,
1: right, right. Because it's it's, um, I've never seen any of these devices get recruited into a botnet anywhere. No. Right, yeah. that never happens. No, never. <laughs> Wait till we get to the internet weather. We talk about this all the time, though. But uh, yeah, all good points. And um, I guess if you have TP-Link router, it might be something you want to take a closer look at. But in general, I think it's a good um, just kind of awareness uh, around this type of thing about domains and making sure that you keep them registered, especially if you need to continue using them and you don't want somebody to fall into somebody else's hands so that they could uh, purport to be you as a company because it might be a well-known domain that really was yours at one point. So. So the next story is one also that you were looking at, Matt. And uh, it's another Android-related story with their disk encryption. Mm-hmm. So I tried to read this one, and this one was real technical. So why don't you try to fill me in?
0: I will, I will try, and I, <laughs> I agree with you. This one is very technical. Um, I would actually recommend most people go to the link that we'll, we'll share for this story to really understand the technical details. But the short version is that uh, security researcher, Gao Beniamont-Mini, I hope I said that right. I'm fairly sure I didn't. Gal Beniamini uh, shared some code recently. Um, Gal's been doing research on Android devices that use a Qualcomm ARM processor, uh, and it's investigating... There's a a certain sort of separated area of of Android called the the trust zone, and this may be specific to Qualcomm, but what they're doing is it's it's a place for storing key material and keys for full disk encryption. This is sort of a, a compare and contrast to... Uh, iOS's secure enclave where that material is stored in hardware and it's not anything you can actually read back out Certain operations occur in the hardware and responses are sent back. You can't get at those keys, which is part of the reason why the whole uh, iOS um, San Bernardino shooter, etc. Was such a big deal is because there was no physical way to retrieve those keys. Anyway, in Android It seems it's not being done the same way. Some of this is actually being done in software. And uh, what this research has just found is ways to get into that trust zone area and retrieve key material. Or I believe that's how it's being done. That this it's an attack that will actually allow you to do uh, to try and break full disk encryption offline. So oh, you can okay. copy that data out and try and crack it elsewhere. I agree with you. It is very technical and I hope I'm representing it correctly. Uh, but it is very interesting in that a number of Android devices are affected. The patch exists. Uh, it hasn't been pushed to everybody, as as we know with Android. But it was a good read, and I think if you're really interested in the differences
1: of how these things are implemented, uh, reading the full blog post is a great way to start. Okay. So long story short, you know, we know, or most of us know that, you know, our mobile handsets, some of the popular ones like iOS, iPhones, and Android handsets mm-hmm. have full disk encryption. Yep. They both encrypt the majority of the user data and everything, most of everything on the device, except mm-hmm. for some of the initial stuff so they can power up, is encrypted on the disk. But the long story short, I guess, is that on um, some of these Android phones, breaking that encryption might be possible here. Yes. Much, um, more, much, much more
0: Much more possible. accessible
1: than in, in any of these other cases that have been talked about. That yep.
0: Have, so the, the short version is try and make sure your phones are patched if they can be patched.
1: Oh, and there is a patch. There for is this, a patch. Right? Okay. Yes. So if you have one of these devices that um, that has this issue, uh, there is a patch to it, so that you're more protected yeah. if your phone falls into the wrong hands. Even still, after reading this article, I would be very hard pressed. I think a lot of people would to actually. You'd have to be a very savvy person to know how to well, break that encryption. That's, that's
0: the thing that I found interesting as well. Is that in his his research, the first comment is one of the developers of. Um, Hashcat, okay. which is a popular cracking software. Yeah. So while it may be complicated, and you and I are having a hard time understanding it for now, the people who do understand this are going to be writing tools to make it much simpler in uh, the future. So that okay. that's always going to happen. You can always imagine someone's going to write you know, a tool and release it. Someone's going to put in a Metasploit module. So the very technical attacks eventually become accessible to the guys who aren't as technical. Right. So we'll have to wait for a couple of weeks, and maybe we'll be able to understand the non-technical
1: later. guys like absolutely. Us.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. No interesting story. Uh, thanks for bringing that one. So let's transition into the internet weather, and it actually has been kind of a slow weather week. There's not really much going on, uh, which is good. And uh, not much new or change from what we're normally been seeing. So that's good. Um, This is the top 10 most probe ports, so this is where you have the most scanning activity just in mass in terms of scan probes in general. Unsurprising, 23TCP has been at the top of the chart for I don't even know how long now. For many weeks, if not months, it's been sitting at the top of the chart in the number one position here. And mostly, again, that's due to these embedded devices, home routers, security camera DVRs, Uh, network-attached storage devices that just have poor security practices, like default passwords, and then people just take them out of the box, they plug them in, put them on the network, and they don't realize that they're exposing a telnet port to the internet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't blame people for not, you know, the average user, I don't expect that they should know that or know to look for it, but us as security people, we see that that's the case. And there's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of these devices out there that have been recruited into various botnets. And right, we'll take a look at a, a picture of that in a minute, uh, what that activity kind of looks like. Um, ADTCP has moved up. That's a tricky one because scanning out port 80 doesn't necessarily always constitute uh, What's anything concrete, right? Because it could be um, uh, web crawling and whatnot mm-hmm. going on. Uh, so I don't know that there's a, a significant security component to that that I would worry about. Uh, Number 353.413 UDP, we've talked about this one quite a bit in the past. It's kind of rised up a little bit, again, as of late. This is the Netis router, so this is another home router. Uh, It has, for whatever reason, some sort of backdoor functionality listening on this port, such that if you send a packet that has an instruction in it, like some shell code, Mm-hmm. Uh, it will execute it and do it. So what you're seeing out there is there's a lot of people who are just spamming the Internet at large, every IP address, with a packet that says, go download and install my malware. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that's what uh, that's what this activity constitutes uh, when you actually take a look at it. 22 TCP, that's SSH, so that's very similar akin to the functionality that you get with 23 TCP. You know, there's similar... Lots of embedded devices that use SSH as their remote administration, which I would encourage them to use because it's encrypted as opposed to 23 TCP telnet, which is not, Uh, but still, people are using default passwords on those as well. A lot of these embedded devices, when they're shipped from the manufacturer, have a default password that the users don't know to set, or maybe they don't even know that this is being exposed to the internet, so. Uh, 53 UDP, this is likely related to DDoS activity and or scanning and looking for DNS reflection sources that an attacker can use uh, as part of their attack. Uh, So there's been an uptick uh, in frequency of scanning on that. 3389 TCP is Remote Desktop Protocol. We always kind of see that one. A lot of these ones you see are means to get remote control of the device. Remote Desktop Protocol is probably the best version because it usually gives you some sort of graphical interface into the machine itself. 445 TCP is your uh, Windows file sharing. There's some vulnerabilities that are very old that still some machines have out there, but there's also file sharing. Sometimes there's scanning, just looking for open file shares that can be used for various reasons. So that might constitute some of this activity. And then I guess the only other one that I would really uh, note here is the 1911 TCP, which is, it is a building automation. But in any event, this is uh, not necessarily anything unless you have this type of system that you want to worry about and make sure your device is not exposed. Um, But there is uh, some building automation software that runs on this port. The majority of the activity we see scanning on this is actually a researching group that is doing it for good purposes for trying to get kind of a sense of how many of these are out there, not for nefarious purposes. And then NTP uh, 123 UDP is the last one here. That's moved down a couple positions again that would be scanning, looking for these devices that they could use as part of uh, NTP reflection attacks for DDoS purposes. And then I thought this was interesting because this is even worse than it's ever been. Uh, It's like this Pac-Man that's just closing its mouth. Eventually the 23 TCP is gonna fill the whole pie chart. But this is the number of sources involved in the scanning. So we're talking about all the infected devices or let's just assume they're infected and they're out there and they're scanning the internet how many devices are scanning on these individual ports. So in terms of 23TCP, this is, it looks like it's probably very close to 75% of this pie chart. And this includes all the other ports as well. So it's not like yes. we're just saying of the top 10 ports, this one constitutes, you know. Well, that's um, the
0: thing that's funny about the chart. It says, you know, last week and the change says zero change. Right, because it's, still a it's significant always been
1: at and, and the volume. number one position, yeah. right. Um, But we'll see kind of how it's leapt up over time here. But even last week, I think it was probably just another pie sliver less. But in general, this is unprecedented level of scanning. In terms of the number of sources involved, I don't think we've ever seen it this high, even back in the Conficker days um, when we had lots of infected devices in that. This is pretty high. Uh, And again, when we kind of take a look at these devices and figure out we're seeing them in a lot of consumer spaces from internet service providers, um, where it's uh, home users with these home routers, and you know, that's what it ends up being. You know, Embedded devices, home routers, security camera DVRs, network attached storage, all these types of things like that are mostly constituting the infected devices engaged in this scanning. The other ones we kind of already discussed here, the only other two that I would kind of make note of that we're gonna show a chart on is the 6881 UDP and TCP. Those are BitTorrent. I don't know that there's actually a security relevant component to the increase in scanning here, although it has gone up quite a bit over the past maybe month or two, and we'll have a chart on that. So let's go take a look at these charts. So first of all, the 23 TCP, which we've been talking about ad nauseum, the top chart here shows the amount of scan flow activity. So how many scan probes, that was that first pie chart. And you can see that, you know, this is a one year picture There was kind of a baseline of noise of scanning on Mm -hmm. this port, Telnet port, that was kind of in the, let's just say 200 million maybe scan flows per hour. And now it's gone up to peaking at like 1.2 billion flows per hour, which is a lot. You can see this dramatic rise here. Probably we kind of noted this on the show when it originally happened. I want to say maybe the middle to end of May is when it really started to creep up here. In concert with this increased in scanning activity, the chart below it is the number of sources that are engaged in that scanning. And again, you saw maybe a peak of 100,000 scan sources per hour uh, over the past year, and rarely did it ever go above that. But then, around that same time frame, it jumped. In fact, it tripled in the number of uh, scan sources involved here, up into the peaking above 300,000 scan sources per hour, which, again, is a lot. And when we say 300,000 scan sources per hour, that doesn't mean there's only 300,000 of these infected devices out there. That just means in the hour window where we do our measurement, that's how many we saw. But if you looked over the span of a day, you know how depending on where bots scan from and what they sweep across, you're gonna see. So a day kind of time frame is probably more realistic to look at. And you'll probably see, you know, over a million unique IP addresses over the course of a day so the 53413 this is that netis one that i talked about it's a very easy to exploit backdoor port that's well known and we've been seeing increased scanning on it it has gone up again towards let's say the end of may again it's it really crept up here it's a very interesting chart i'm not quite sure why there's these little spiky lines here like we see it looks like a really bad comb that i wouldn't want to run through my hair because I'd probably I mean, hurt myself, but.
0: It, it, I would say it's probably some sort of synchronized scanning effort by somebody. Probably. Maybe not a botnet, maybe somebody with a lot tighter control, because you don't see that same tapering off that we usually do, the sawtooth pattern, we see ups and downs.
1: Yeah, it's a little different than normal, so I'm not quite sure and why. That's, that's
0: flows counts, so that may even be a single or a very small handful of sources doing that's
1: that. That's true, it could be. I did not get a scan SIPS picture of this. One of the things about this is, since it's UDP, it really is irrelevant who the scan source is because yeah. it doesn't even, you could spoof it and it's still going to work because um, it only takes one packet. You don't really need to establish any kind of connection. So UDP is a connectionless protocol. Uh, the attackers, if they wanted to, could just spoof it as localhost as the source IP. Not that that would route very well, but uh, in any event. We have seen increased scanning on this. Um, it's tapering down a little bit, uh, but it's still pretty high. So we're looking at hundred million scan flows per hour Uh, maybe peaking at around 140, 160 with these little weird spikes that uh, have been creeping up lately. So another one to keep an eye out, especially if you have NETUS devices, you really, if you don't know about this vulnerability by now, you really should pay attention to it. Probably figure out if you could patch that device and uh, what security measures you put in place to prevent it from. Mm. Because it's one of those ones, we talk about these devices a lot where once it gets infected, it's only infected while the thing's powered up. If it reboots, it's all clean again. Mm-hmm. So typically, I think what a lot of users especially don't really know what's going on, all they realize is, boy, my network connection is slow. Yep. What the heck is going on? They reboot their router, and now it seems all fast again. They say, oh, that must have fixed it. But the reality could be is that their machine or their home router is infected and it's engaged in so much scanning that it can't get any of their legitimate you know, web traffic out because it's so busy scanning things, but they don't have any visibility into that as a regular mm-hmm. user, so. Uh, it's important thing to, to take note of and pay attention to if you have the capability to do so. Uh, and then the last chart here is uh, scan sources on uh, the BitTorrent ports, which I thought is interesting. So this is the number of scan sources. I don't really know what to make of this other than towards the end of April. The number of scan sources on the 6881 UDP port has, you know, pretty dramatically risen up here. So I kind of gave a 120-day view, so about a four-month view of what we've seen. You can see prior to that late May timeframe, it was pretty you know, low. There wasn't much going on here. And then right around this time, it really spiked up. Now, I don't know that there's a, a real security relevant mm-hmm. component here, or if it's just whatever. When did the did.
0: new season of Game of Thrones start?
1: Well, I didn't try to check that out. That's a good point. I'm just
0: saying, because when, <laughs> when you connect
1: to a torrent, obviously, you,
0: first you connect to your tracker, typically, right? or a magnet, and then you, And that's
1: where you might see these And types then you would see,
0: it would, tr- it would give you a list of seeds and peers, and you'd try them all, and that looks like scanning, because you're trying to contact a
1: number of hosts. Right, right. So it is possible. I didn't try to correlate it with any particular type of uh, file sharing or uh, entertainment media cycles that are going on. Uh, we have correlated some of those things in the past, so that's a good observation. It would be interesting to try to track that back if there's some real uh, rationale behind that there. Uh, but just another one that I thought was an interesting chart. I'm not quite sure what to make of it yet. Long story short, I don't know that there's any real security relevant risk right now, um, but I would just have some elevated awareness about around it, especially if you see it on your network. Uh, you might want to investigate those sources that are involved in it. Uh, to make sure that they really should be using BitTorrent, um, especially in a corporate environment, it's probably less commonplace that you would have, need to have that, um, or except in specialized cases. And that's the show for today. Uh, thank you for joining us. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at attthreattrack at list.att.com. You can also find the ATT Threat Track program on the ATT Tech Channel, uh, YouTube, and also on iTunes. Uh, please follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at ATT Business. Uh, I'd like to thank you, Jim, for joining us again this week. And Matt, thanks. Sure uh, I'm John Hogaboom. We'll be back next week with a new episode. Until then, keep your network safe.
0: The views expressed on AT&T Threat Track are those of the participants and do not necessarily
1: represent the views of at and or any other person or entity.